0: I want to introduce you to our series for the semester. Uh, we're studying the stories that Jesus told, uh, also commonly known as the parables. I'll give you a few reasons for why we're doing that, um, just to prove to you that we don't do things completely haphazardly. Uh, there are There is some rationale. Uh, the parables of Jesus are words he spoke, and that's good. We should study those. Uh, secondly... Um, When people tell stories, it usually says something about them. We can often tell something, learn something about the storyteller from the stories they tell. And so we can learn about Jesus by studying these parables. Not only what he has to say, but something about him himself. Uh, Third, we like stories. Fourth, uh, the stories of Jesus are subversive. As my son would say, uh, they're sneaky. Sneaky stories. Uh... Jesus, and his stories, uh, well, the stories themselves, they, they creep up on us, uh, capture us somehow, and their detail, and their logic, and their implications for our life. So, uh, say it uh, any way you want. I'm excited for this semester and what we're going to be studying. And uh, we're starting off with a, a great one tonight. Uh, not that anyone's better than another, but uh, I picked this one because I particularly like the passage. And tonight, in uh, Luke chapter 7... Uh, we're going to see, as as we read uh, in just a moment, but not one story, uh, but two stories, two different stories involving two different ways of thinking, two different ways of living, and uh, all manner of scandal and beauty uh, mixed in, as well. Okay. Well, I'm going to read the text, uh, Luke seven thirty-six to fifty. Thank you, Jared, for uh, serving in this way. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, grant our minds clarity. As we seek to study your word today, pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us yourself. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us ourselves, and press these truths into reality in our life. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I've learned that uh, we're often surprised uh, by the kind of story that uh, holds beauty. Something that may start off ugly may end in beauty, and uh, yeah. Takes us by surprise. Something like this happened on June 3rd of this past summer. Um, a man named Armando Galarraga was on the cusp of uh, making history in baseball. Only 20 men in the history of baseball have pitched a perfect game, a perfect game if you're not familiar. is a game in which you allow no hits, give up no walks, and in which your team commits no errors. It is a performance of perfection. And, uh, I thought he was on the cusp, but the stadium was filled with anticipation. And uh, the 27th man, the last out, had a weak ground at her first base. Armando Galarrago did his job. uh, Covered the base, received his catch, tagged the base, his teammates began to celebrate. And as quickly as the celebration began, it would have been a love fest for sure, uh, it ended. Because Jim Joyce, the first base umpire, had ruled that the base runner was safe. Now, People do perfect games all the time and no-hitters all the time. And the typical fan reaction, and the reaction of players, is disappointment. But then you pick it up and you clap and you give the guy applause for his effort. And you go on with the game. That didn't happen in this game quite that way. Instead, players and fans stood around in shock and dismay. They could scarcely believe what they'd seen. Because Jim Joyce had obviously blown the call. Defying all logic... He, who was one of the best umpires in baseball, misjudged and blew the call and ruined what was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Armando Galarraga. Would have put a stamp on his career forever. And deprived us of a good ending. I mean, it would have been wonderful. Uh, This hardly ever happened. Well, believe it or not, uh, this story, which I'm not going to finish right now, has a happy ending. Perhaps a more beautiful ending than even a game that ends in perfection. And it's all because Jim Joyce uh, made an error. Uh, I want us to consider tonight, in our time together, why Christians are often so lifeless, loveless, joyless, peaceless. I don't know. You come up with some other adjective. Blah. Why? Why... And this is not just something that you would perhaps recognize if you're a skeptic or an unbeliever. But even if you're a Christian here today and you take an honest look at yourself, or the way you've lived the last year, you say, yeah, I don't love, I don't have the kind of peace and joy and faithfulness that I should. And so perhaps here if you're a skeptic, you're asking yourself, why in the world should I embrace this thing, this belief system, if it only produces... Uh, mediocrity. Uh, And uh, what I'm going to contend is that uh, we're trapped in the wrong story. Living a logic uh, that is not ours, that is a logic belonging to this other story, and living out its fruitless, joyless uh, consequences. And we think that's the only story there is. But there is no other story. We get trapped in it. Well, what we're going to see tonight is uh, if we really want to know and experience the beauty, the the beautiful aspects of Christianity that are out there, Uh, then we must be willing to embrace some of the scandalous aspects of the message as well. If we want to know and experience regularly the beautiful aspects of Christianity, peace, joy, love, uh, then we must be willing to embrace some of the scandalous aspects on a regular basis. And what we're going to see today is two different stories. Uh, one is the story of religion, and the other is the story of grace. Okay? Each one of these stories has their own logic and produces its own kind of life. So that's what we're going to look at. And, and first, the story of religion, uh, which has its own logic, and what we're going to see in our text is it's a logic of performance. The scene is uh, an interesting one. It starts in verse 36. A Pharisee, which he would have been a well-respected uh, religious leader in his community, not nearly the nasty kind of caricature that we often give. He would have been well-respected. Asked Jesus to eat with him. And uh, this doesn't seem like it's a trap, although perhaps it is. And uh, Jesus undoubtedly joins other people around this Pharisee's table. And um, the table would have been interesting uh, if you could walk in, and actually you could have if you were there. Um, What you would have seen is a, a number of people lying down on their left arm, eating with their right hands, feet radiating out from the table. It, if you had a view from above, it would look like a bicycle with its spokes. Uh, something like that. And uh, they're eating and conversing. And uh, in verse 37, a, a woman of the city, it says, uh, who was a sinner, having learned Jesus was there reclining, came in. Now, this may seem like some strange intrusion. She broke into the house. Uh, and that society at that time, actually, sort would have been open. It would have been open not for you to come and dine, but for you to come and watch, strangely. Uh, Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees. Okay, let's go and watch. And they literally sit around the courtyard and watch the meal. Um, So that's not strange. What is strange is what she begins to do. She has hunted him down. The text makes that pretty clear. But she doesn't have anything to say. Or if she does, uh, she's too much of a mess to say it. Instead, standing at his feet, uh, she is weeping. And and then begins to do uh, some really socially inappropriate things. Um, it, it was normal to, to wash your feet when you came into a house. It was not normal to wash them with tears. My hair, her hair should have even been publicly shown. These were all sort of cultural um, beliefs of the time. And uh, it was her tears, in fact, these messy, slobbering tears that probably saved her from uh, the judgment that this was some obscene act on her part. If she just had to like this without tears, they would have thrown her out, but she was clearly emotionally distraught. (coughs) So what's the big deal? Why not just thank her and walk her gently to the door and just dismiss her? Why not that? Why the rest of this story? Uh, Because it was a big deal in that culture. In fact, it was a huge deal what she had done. Because theirs was a logic of performance. And I I sort of believe, and I could be proven wrong because I haven't been to every culture ever, but I sort of believe that, naturally speaking, almost all cultures are based on performance. They have some logic of performance. It's just that the performance looks different. The performance in our culture is production. That's why the first thing we ask is, what do you do? We want to know what you do. We want to know what you produce. Not where you're from, not who you are, not who your daddy is or anything else. What you do. Other cultures might be different something else, um, but it's still performance. This particular culture's manifestation of performance was purity. Purity from sin, purity from ritual uncleanness. And uh, to help you illustrate this, I'll tell you a little story. A couple years ago when I was in grad school, I was uh, trying to make ends meet. I was working as a painter. And I uh, showed up one day for a particular job and uh, found out it was the, the home of an Orthodox Jewish family. Not a big deal. I um, was just excited to have work. Uh, I was aware that living and working in an Orthodox Jewish household, I would have to observe some of their observances, or at least uh, be sensitive to them. For instance, if I moved something, I had to put it right back. And Sometimes there would be a sink for clean things and unclean things, and I couldn't mix those things. I could never see the wife without her, with her hair exposed, which was easy not to do because she always wore a wig. Um, we always had to leave by 4.30 on Friday or we would transgress their Sabbath. So these are a number of things we had to do. Um, and I was aware of that, and I was willing to observe it, at least philosophically. I found practically, however, very hard to do. Because the very f- within 30 minutes of being there, uh, in my very first tasks, I sliced my finger open. And in my frustration and anger, literally, I was angry. I sliced my finger. It was a bad cut. I threw the razor blade down and in doing so, I sliced this finger. <laughs> so half an hour into my uh, time in this orthodox Jewish home, I, a Gentile, and I don't know the purification laws, cleanliness laws regarding Gentile blood. I just know that in my first half hour, I was walking around this home, is an outsider, bleeding everywhere. <laughs> I was uh, a mess to them. I was a blight if you would. And that's what this woman is to this community here. Uh, She is a blight. Some commentators think she was a prostitute. The text isn't at all clear. What is clear is she has a reputation. She has a history. A past. That in that culture, according to their logic of performance, she had not performed well. And uh, we see this in Simon the Pharisee's logic. It's pretty simple. This woman has been a sinner. Therefore, this woman is a sinner, and she is unclean. And no religious authority with any kind of self-respect, any kind of awareness, any kind of true religious authority would ever allow himself to be treated in this manner by such an unclean woman. Therefore, notice this is what happens. He doesn't just judge the woman, he judges Jesus. Jesus cannot be a true religious authority. He can't be a prophet. No prophet would ever allow himself to be handled in such a way by a woman like this. This is the way the logic of performance goes for Simon. Purity is necessary. She is performed poorly. Jesus accepts her. Therefore, he is performed poorly. They're both to be excluded. That's the logic. Let's look at the kind of life this logic produces. What kind of story this strange combination makes. And uh, it's pretty clear as we go along. In verse 40, Jesus uh, says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And uh, the way this is worded uh, implies, uh, Simon, this is going to be hard for you. The the implication in that culture and the language is a a rebuke is coming. And that's why Jesus actually waits till Simon says, Go ahead. It's almost like, Are you sure you want this? And so Jesus tells a story, and it's a very short story. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But what we see with that story is Jesus is beginning to show Simon himself, his life. And here's some of the things we see about Simon's life. It's painful. First, uh, he is a man who judges. In verse 44, Jesus asks Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, it's probably a rhetorical question. I think it's a good question nevertheless. But there's a sense in which Simon does not see this woman. He sees tears. He sees a past. He sees a mess. He sees ritual impurity. He sees a failure. But does he see this woman? Does he see a person? Or just a problem? And I contend that what this man, taken up with performance, the logic of it, what he sees is a problem. He sees clean and unclean, in and out, good and bad. He sees her problems, but not her. And he judges. And as one uh, with this kind of temperament. uh, He's one that lives in fear. Now this might not be as clear, but I'm going to argue for it. Uh, His mentality is we have to be careful We as a community have to be careful. We can't have people like this among us because she, unclean, will make us unclean. She's already made Jesus unclean. That's what he thought. And they will pass their sin and uncleanness along to us before we all be infected. It will ruin our lives. And, And many people live like that now. We can't let people like this in our community. It will ruin us. His belief was that sin, that uh, impurity, that brokenness, was more powerful than good. Could infect it, could take over, could push it back. So he lived in fear and separated himself. And lastly, we see that uh, he is one who has very little love. His life is one of little love. Uh, those who live in fear just can't love very well. It's hard. They're too busy running away. And uh, it's not just this woman that he doesn't love. Uh, we see that he's not even capable of offering to Jesus basic hospitality. That's the nature of the rebuke that's sort of going on here in a moment. Um, Simon, you didn't do anything. In that society, anyone that came into the house should have been offered water to wash their feet. He didn't offer the most basic hospitality. He didn't shake Jesus' hand and say, welcome. Uh, in spite of the fact that he called him teacher. Term of uh, Basically, treated him, but with his words, uh, said, "You're a man of tremendous respect. Welcome." He did not serve Jesus, but in lips only, but not in any practical way, not in love. So we see Simon's a man marked by judgment and fear and lack of love. Why? Verse forty-seven. Uh, Jesus tells us that he who's forgiven little, loves little. And this is what we see. Simon. Thinks he's performed well. Not much need for forgiveness. I'm a pretty good guy. I got myself together. And this false belief produces in him little love. A judging disposition. Fear. Lack of love. Well, let's talk about us. Do we see people I mean, do we really see them? Or do we simply see them long enough to dismiss them, literally? Oh, I see him. I don't want to see him anymore. (laughs) Who is it? There's probably multitudes of different kinds of people that we don't want to see, that we dismiss, that we avoid, that we write off as though they do not exist. I don't mean just away from this campus, because that's easy. I mean here. Uh, Maybe it's a socially awkward freshman. That guy that eats every meal alone. And you sort of feel sorry for him, there's no way you're gonna to talk to him. You might catch whatever it is that makes him so socially awkward. He's the guy that plays a dance game sitting in student union all by himself for three hours in the afternoon and you wonder know what's wrong with him. Or he sits in his room and plays video games all night. Maybe it's that guy. Or maybe it's someone in your major or in some <coughs> class and you even get the sense but maybe because you have so many classes with this person that maybe you could have a relationship with them, but for some reason you just won't do it. Maybe they're not smart enough. Maybe they're not industrious enough. Maybe they're just a little bit too messed up for you. You just don't have time for screwed up slackers. Um, or perhaps it's uh, someone in your hall, in your apartment, either now or two years ago, and you know they're a mess. They're the kind of person that everyone knows they're a mess. They drink too much. They sleep around too much. They cry too much. They need you too much. They want too much. and You simply don't want that burden. All kinds of people around us that we just don't want to see. And what I want us to do, friends, is I'm asking you to examine your life. Jesus is, this is what he does. Look at yourself. Look at your schedule. Look at your friends. Is there a place in your life for people like this? If not, this is Jesus' logic. If not, you're living the story of a performance. You're being driven by performance. You're captive to its logic. These people don't have a place in your life because they don't have a place in your logic. And you're not willing to love them because you can't. You love little because you've been forgiven little. And friends, this is a sad story. This is no way to live the Christian life. All right, well, what about the other uh, story? Uh, Is this the only story? It's not, uh, but we often live, even as Christians, like it is, this performance mentality. It's why we lack faith. It's why we lack love. Uh, We're mistaken, though. Christianity is a story of grace. It's got its own logic and its own life. And and the logic is one of forgiveness. This is going to go much quicker. It's a shorter story. Um, And we see the story in verses 41 and 42. Jesus tells it certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And they could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. The end. That's the story. Um, hard to get lost in the details of that one. Um, well, what does it mean? What's it all about? In verse 47, again, we find out what the story is all about. It's about the forgiveness of sin. And what we see Jesus saying is, God... Is the money lender? There are three characters in this story. You don't get to pick who you are. You're not God, therefore you are a debtor. I'm sorry. There's no room for people that got it all together. There's no room in this story for someone who's got it all together. You're not God. You're not lending out forgiveness, um, but you are a debtor. And in the logic uh, of the story, is shocking, scandalous. Uh, God is a money lender, money lender who doesn't care about money. He just gives it away. Uh, so it seems. Well, let's go the logic a little more closely. And in the logic here, the logic of grace, is so clear that even Simon can understand it. Jesus asks, um, "For whom?" Uh, excuse me. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt." Jesus said, "You've judged rightly. Uh, Simon has judged the woman wrongly." judged Jesus wrongly. He is a prophet, by the way. He knows Simon's heart. <laughs> and uh, But he can't judge this rightly. The logic of this text is pretty clear. And it runs like this. Everyone's a debtor. Everyone. No one performs well enough to be free from owing God. Everyone owes. But God is gracious and willing to forgive debtors all their debt. And debtors like our woman, who see their debt as insurmountable, who recognize I cannot pay this off, respond with great love. They respond with great, overwhelming love to the grace of God. The scandal comes in and for people like Simon, and maybe people like some of you, uh, when you realize what Jesus is really saying here. Who is the mature person? The mature person is the woman. She loves much. What does God command? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This guy who thinks he's got it all together loves nobody. He's as immature as you can get. This woman who's an utter mess loves God and loves others as well. The scandal here is that Simon's either an unforgiven debtor who doesn't recognize he needs forgiveness or he's been forgiven and is the most ungrateful wretch ever. You need to recognize that's a possibility for some of you that Yeah, I believe this, but man, I live in the wrong story, and that's why I'm so wretched and miserable. I don't really recognize what God's done for me. Well, that's the logic of grace. Uh, The life, just the opposite of uh, Simon's This woman. We've seen it's a life of much love. We can't help but see it. It's on display for the whole town. She's a mess, but she's a mess of love. She, She comes into this house, she can't contain herself. She's all love. She's pouring out of her unto Jesus in gratitude. Um, As it regards judgment, Simon judges. He can't help but judge. He judges everyone. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. It's no judgment for her whatsoever. She's received pardon. How is this possible? Uh, We get a little picture of it at the end of the story. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, everyone turns and immediately starts to judge him. This is sort of a picture of the gospel. (laughs) Um, Of the heart of it. That Jesus is judged in our place. Um, That God's grace is free to us. It's not completely free. God doesn't erase our debt. He pays it. He pays it himself. The person of Jesus and his death. This woman is free from judgment. And uh, lives like it. Meaning she has no fear. Does she look afraid to you? I mean, this is a room uh, full of religious authorities, uh, special people. Jesus the great teacher. She only invites herself in, but as an utter mess, makes a spectacle of herself. She doesn't seem to care. Uh, She's afraid of nothing, it would seem. And uh, she risks misunderstanding. In her extravagant act, in her approach to Jesus, using her hair, using her tears, she was inviting the worst judgment this woman's she would have been judged. She was judged. She didn't care. She wasn't afraid. And uh, this is because Jesus himself isn't afraid. Uh, Jesus imitates her master. Jesus, is he afraid to associate with people like this? No. Surrounded by people who you think he would respect their or want to earn their respect, He doesn't care. He's not afraid. And unlike Simon, whose basic view is that nasty, sinful mess is going to infect me and ruin my life, Jesus has no fear. He knows grace is more powerful. Sin will not ruin me. Rather, grace will overcome sin and change it and redeem it and beautify it. She's not going to ruin my life. I'm going to change her life. And so she is no threat to him or burden to him. He loves her. And she has peace. The opposite of fear. Verse 50. Your faith has served you. Go in peace. Lastly, love. Uh, don't need to say much about it. She has much love. It's clear. It's, it's lavish. It's, it's almost ridiculous. Um, Simon couldn't even offer Jesus the most basic care. Didn't wash his feet. Didn't anoint him. She, loving him so much, basically said, What resources do I have? Tears wash feet. Oh, I need to dry them. What do I have? My hair will do. He needs to be anointed. What do I have? This very expensive perfume. was probably some long family heirloom. This thing was incredibly expensive. She basically, out of her love, gathered whatever resources she could to love Jesus well. And there's little reason to doubt she would have loved other people just as compassionately as well. This is the kind of beautiful life that gospel logic produces. Okay? This is what it should produce in our lives. Every day, I don't want to say that, but consistently, faithfully, we should be people marked by love and lack of fear and the confidence that we're not judged or no one else's judgment matters because Jesus has forgiven us. Why don't we see it more often? Why don't we experience it more often? skeptic if you're here. Why don't you see it in Christians more often? And I tell you, it's because we're living in the wrong story most of the time. We're often caught up in the lie, the story of performance. We just don't think... God's a good God, will forgive all my debts. Somehow I have to please him and appease him. How do we get out of this? How you get back in the real story? Because the trap here is to think you've got to perform some special act to get out of it. Uh, simple. You have to remember the story. You have to remember the story and live the story and embrace it. Uh, remember who you are. You don't get to be anybody in this story but a debtor. You're a mess. You can't pay God off. Admit it. It's wonderfully freeing. And God is willing to forgive you your debt. If you have a hard time really coming to grips with, well, you know, five hundred, fifty, 50 maybe I God $5. Bucks, um, do to yourself what Jesus said to Simon. Who do you love? Look at your life. Do you have time for anyone? Jesus said, if you don't love people, your faith nothing look at your love look at your schedule look at the people that you ignore that you abandon that you run from more likely than not a lot of us have a fine job looking at ourselves, caring for ourselves, but not others not jesus so that's not just to make you miserable that's to give you a realistic portrait of yourself having that you turn to jesus he knows exactly what you're like and he's forgiven every bit of it and he loves you anyway and his grace will make much more sense to you have much more impact in your life knowing exactly the kind of person you are turn to Jesus who graciously forgives you all your debts and invites you in makes you his own transforms your life this is not just some of you think this is the way you become a Christian why are we doing this well, it's true, this is the way you become a Christian this is also the way you be a Christian every day this is the road to maturity, to loving others well, to loving others as this woman did. We have to, we have to always think and live this way. And that will free us from the tyranny of performance. Um, there, if there is a more beautiful story than that of uh, a perfect performance, like a perfect game, it would have to be a story of grace, and that's what we have. Um, after the game, Jim Joyce who's a wonderful umpire. He uh, discovered his error. Um, Thirty thousand people in the stadium, and all the players for the Tigers let him know. Um, but he could have simply done what many umpires do, which is say, "Called it as I saw it." Sorry, at the end, and never reviewed it or cared to issue the statement. Uh, Jim Joyce, however, uh, said, okay, show me the video. It's saw the video, <laughs> and he broke down in a mess. Uh, sometime later, it was probably two hours after the game, um, Armando Galarraga, who was still in the ballpark, uh, received a message that Jim Joyce wanted to speak to him. And Armando Galarraga was ushered back into the umpire's room, where he met uh, Jim Joyce. Jim Joyce, two hours after the game, still had not showered or changed clothes. In fact, he was beat red flushed, flustered, um, sad, crying. (laughs) And he couldn't speak. He he tried to speak, but he couldn't. And and so this man, uh, they didn't know each other, uh, simply walked over and gave Armando Galarraga a hug. And then after a while, got himself together and said two words uh, in Spanish, which I don't speak very well. Lo siento. I'm sorry. I apologize. Armando Galarraga forgave him. And uh, we didn't really know about this. Caught a fan. It became clear the next day. Sixteen hours later, these teams had to play again. And that day, Jim Joyce's responsibility was to cover home plate. One of his responsibilities is to receive uh, the lineup. And usually send out some coach to do it. But that day, the Tigers sent out Armando Galarraga on purpose. (laughs) So these two men met at home plate. And as the crowd was booing, Many of them, for uh, he was a villain in their eyes, uh, they watched as these men shook hands, hugged each other, <laughs> with uh, Jim Doyle's fighting back tears. Hmm. Uh, this, this is the uh, words of some other sports writer, not just me, because I'm a sports fan and you guys know I'm all emotional. So, this is, this is some objective guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Those last few words, excuse me, I just read that. Uh, The two men exchanged handshakes and hugs on one of the most inspiring, emotional, moving displays of sportsmanship any sport had ever seen. Um, If there's a story that's more beautiful than a perfect performance, it is a story of grace. And this was beautiful. It was beautiful to anyone that saw it. And the story of grace is more beautiful than any story you're trying to live right now. It really is. That's our prayer tonight. That's my prayer for you this semester. That this story of grace, this logic, this life Jesus offers to you will mark us all as individuals and as a community. And that it will become apparent to people all around us that they would come in seeing the beauty of it and want to embrace Jesus as well. Okay, let's pray together.